Welcome to the 24 Stories podcast that aims to educate, inspire and help build brands. I'm your host, Stephen Ryan, founder of 24 Stories, and I'll be joined each week by guests from a variety of industries here to tell you how they built their brands. Welcome to episode 15 of the 24 Stories podcast. This week, we're going to be looking at the rental market, but we're going to kick it off by going back on someone's journey from, I suppose, the whole insurance industry into that startup world. I'm delighted to be joined by Patrick Drynan. Welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Thank you very much, Stephen, and thank you for inviting me. I think at this point, you might be my second former student on the podcast, so I know a bit of the backstory. Yeah. Um, but don't know all of it. Um, I kind of met you when you were at the end of one story and starting the other story. Absolutely. So I was pivoting. Yeah. So I want to go back. Where did all that pivot start? So take me back. What, what, where did it all kick off? Where, where did well, you grow up? I was born and reared in, I'm a proud Corkman, so born yeah. and reared on the other side of Charleville in North Cork. Yeah. And at uh, 17, did the leaving yeah. and... I got accepted into European studies in University of Limerick. Okay. Um, it was a, a wonderful course for somebody um, like with my background because we went from regular country, um, rural setting, farmer's son and very much into everything farming. And all of a sudden it opened my eyes to uh, politics, sociology, law, insurance and two languages, French and German. So... It was great and I met wonderful other students there. So mm-hmm. two years ended um, six month placement in Germany and another year in I did six months with Prudential Life in Dublin. And so that introduced me to the insurance industry. I chose insurance as my major because yeah. with the subjects we had at the time, it was still, what was it, 1988, unemployment was 15%. It was the practical option, insurance yeah. or law, and I went down the insurance route. Mm. And although lots of people said, oh my God, insurance, but um, I did my thesis on insurance in the movie industry. So that was the time of, in if you glamorous. remember. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was great. It was the time of uh, the commitments was being made in Ireland, yeah. the crying game, my left foot. Yeah. Um, this is when uh, there were some very good uh, tax advantages there. Yeah. And so a lot of the movie production houses came to Ireland and it was just a good time to be doing that particular thesis. And during the thesis, there were only two insurance brokers in Ireland specialised in the movie industry. And when I left, I got the offer of a job in Prudential, the safe and steady option. But three months in, I got that tap on the shoulder from one of those two specialty insurance brokers. And so I went off to work with a small outfit, um, Network Insurances and Philip O'Dwyer, and we focused on everything entertainment and movie industry which yeah. was wonderful because there it was due it was a niche it was a specialty and that's kind of a running theme yeah for my um and so my was career it public liability insurance and stuff like that or, or that was it it was like uh, public liability there was professional indemnity you mm. had a lot of traditional companies that were introducing this into their you know somebody might be a carpenter normally and now they were building sets yeah and so they had to understand all of that you had um you know, there were solicitors that were pivoting to, to be advisors and to work um, with production companies. You had, it was almost like foreign direct investment these days, but you had investors coming to Ireland to invest and they wanted, they had certain requirements. So you had new clauses on motor policies that were now, motors were being used for hairy stunts. 
um, and things like that. And so, if you like, I was in the broker side, we were selling the idea for, um, you know, employer's liability and what were the risks or what was, because you were all of a sudden talking about a new cohort of, of employees. So it was very interesting. And then one day we won a public company, um, not in the entertainment industry, but this PLC had uh, kind of stepped it up in corporate insurances. We had to know what to, to get for them. And in that research came across a product, Directors and Officers Liability, yeah. which was a very new cover in Ireland. In fact, so new that there was nobody underwriting it. And when we asked a couple of companies, one of them, Chubb Insurance Company, they invited somebody to move from, to, to fly over from London to talk to us about it. And so... After that meeting, about a week later, I decided this was fascinating. I loved it. It was business. It was a specialty. Um, you know, it was insurance. So I had some qualifications yeah. and, I, and I pitched to the company, I think you should have one of these underwriters in Ireland. Mm. And they agreed. And so I was the first financial lines underwriter in Ireland at the time. And again, if you like, it was Cyclops moment. It was it was one I men in the land of the blind. There were very few brokers that were confident to talk about it and there were no underwriters. But when you said director's liability and stuff like that, was that for in the case of the company going bust that you'd have insurance? Or, or, or? It was effectively boards of directors. You know, every day they make decisions that mm-hmm. affect the company. Yeah. But they also affect lots of other stakeholders. So not just the, the shareholders, but employees, employees. Mm-hmm. Um, people they do business with, that the company does business with. There's yeah. the Environmental Protection Agency that keeps an eye. Um, so everything the company does, the directors are by de facto responsible for making those decisions and they make mistakes. Yeah. And sometimes they they haven't made a mistake, but there's an investigation into the decisions they've made and that costs a lot of money. And so their directors and officers liability insurance policies would stand behind those decisions and cover those um, not fraudulent um, yeah. um, actions, but it would be there to. Uh, these could be quite expensive, especially if you're listed on a on a stock exchange, or or the most extreme, if you're listed on a stock exchange in New York or in America. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, it would cost a lot of money if you make a mistake, or even are seen to have ma- possibly made a mistake. And so that's what the, that insurance policy covered. So give faith to shareholders and stuff, kind of, you know, as in, you know, this is a backup if anything goes yeah, wrong. Yeah, it's a backup that, you know, company funds won't be used to defend the directors who are entitled to an indemnity from the company. Otherwise, why would they be a director? Yeah. You know, you otherwise you're putting all of your net worth, your personal net worth on the line when you come, become a director. So the policy is there to... To protect you from that. And a lot of times, in fact, most times now, directors won't become directors of a company without that backup because you're putting all of your personal net worth on the line for the decisions you make. And, yeah. you know, people make mistakes. Yeah. So, um, or they get accused of making mistakes and that's all very costly. And so you want to make sure that indemnity from the company is strong yeah. and it's even more robust if there's an insurance policy to back it up. So in the case of an underwriter, what, what is the difference in that case for most of us listening, but people listening? Oh, yeah. Well, the insurance broker, um, they represent the regular business out in the world. Yeah. So they come to sit down with the business, understand everything the business does, try to understand all of the risks that, that are in the business. And then mm. they create a story about all of that, bring yeah. it all together and present it then to the underwriting market, the insurance companies. Mm. And so when they present it to the company, they'll that will be assessed by an underwriter, the business risk will be. And so they 
they have the benefit of, if you like, um, the law of large numbers and that they have lots of experience from other similar types of companies. They develop rates for yeah. with the likelihood of, of something going wrong or the likelihood of an insurance claim. And you might feel that nothing will ever happen to me, but it does happen to eventually yeah. to, you know, regular risks are there and, and, and things do happen to a certain proportion of companies. And those losses are you know, certain sizes and, you know, their modelling is done and you could be lucky enough to not have any claim for an awful long time or, you know, you could be unlucky enough to have a claim. Mm. And so the underwriter is there to make that assessment according to the, the rates and rules and modelling that their particular insurance company have worked out. And then they charge the price and they negotiate the terms and conditions. Okay. And so that's what I was doing. In fact, I was working with that director's and officer's liability product for the next 16 years. Oh. in Dublin for a start. And then I, I moved with Chubb Insurance Company over to Manchester. To We were opening offices in Manchester, Leeds and Glasgow. Yeah. And we had one in Birmingham and uh, reporting into London. And then in, when was it? May 1999, I moved to London. I was with Laura, my wife, and we had one of our two boys at the time. Yeah. And so still with directors and officers liability. And... Uh, so you had made a niche for yourself in that in in that industry. Yeah, in but the insurance industry, it was still relatively speaking mm. a niche. It was a specialty area. And, yeah, and I like that. I like going deep into something, doing it, having a product that that I'm confident is better than all the products out there, and then going out and pitching it and and yeah. winning the the type of customer that we're looking for. So you stayed an underwriter for. 16 years, and did you yeah. did you shift course then a small bit? Or? I did a little bit. I. I took on more marketing roles. In the year 2000, I moved to Kemper and spent two years there. And that was sort of opening up their office in London. They were uh, they were an American-owned uh, mutual insurance company. Mm. And that went swimmingly well. I was around 31, 32, 33 at the time. And opening an office on Leadenhall Street, which is right in the centre of London. Yeah. You know, it was a great responsibility. Yeah. And, um, you know, making a, a mark, making a name for ourselves, for our company, recruiting very good staff and mm. then winning, you know, important business at the time. Yeah. That went swimmingly well until 9-11. And in 9-11, that American mutual was overextended on um, contracts with the, the, the Twin Towers. Okay. And so... Because of payouts and stuff afterwards? Yeah, and payouts and stuff like that. Yeah. And so that was an exciting time for a while then. And our European operation went tremendously well. But, you know, the writing was on the wall then for, oh, I don't know, I suppose we traded six months where it was uncertainty mm. after 9-11 because... Um, you know, we were just watching and learning from what's going on in the US, but the, the entire marketplace was changing because of what happened yeah. in 9-11. But, but I thought because of a terrorist attack that they wouldn't pay out in those circumstances. Or am I wrong in that case? No. Um, well, that was in, there, there were a lot of court cases yeah. arguing that same point for yeah. a good few years afterwards. Yeah. But no, there, were, there was a lot of money paid. Somebody had to build, uh, pay to build the new rebuild. structures and rebuild. Um, so it was more from a company perspective maybe? Yeah, than, or the than company. A, than yeah. a, a personal, like the individuals, the, sad, the families who... There were payouts there as well. There? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yes, for... Um, was it over 3,000 um, families yeah, or people yeah, were affected. Yeah, so yeah. after that, then I moved to Ace European Group 
and that was in March 2002. Yeah, that was a great move because it it was uh, it was an up and coming. It was a wonderful insurance company. It was only formed in 1985. It was growing very quickly. They had tremendous leadership there, and for the next what was it, fourteen years, I worked with Ace European Group, when, yeah. and then ironically, um, Ace European Group grew to a certain extent, a certain size. There was a, a sort of a reverse takeover of Chubb, the original company that had joined in Dublin. And so Ace bought into Chubb and took the Chubb name and changed the name Ace European Group or Ace Limited, became Chubb. And now they trade as Chubb and they're the largest um, capitalised insurance company in the world and a, and a great success story. But before that happened, you, you said like you went into marketing and but how, like, how did you pivot from underwriting insurance to marketing insurance, yeah. is it is it just because of your knowledge? Well, no, I was interested in in it, and it was product marketing, it was product led. If, okay. if you think of it like that, in that it was less. There was no social media, but no. um, my role certainly at the time yeah. was around product and understanding the product and refreshing the products that we had. And there were other niche products there. There were directors and officers liability. There was crime insurance, which was around um, regular crime, but also white collar crime for yeah. the same companies. There was a little bit of kidnap ransom insurance. There was fiduciary or pension trustees liability insurance. Yeah. Um, and these were all, if you like, niche area. Yeah. But combined together, they, they had a common target audience, yeah. um, which was the mostly the board of directors of the company secretary would be yeah. the, the buyers of those policies. It's very much B2B marketing, so was it? Yeah. I, I, did, I missed out a part that I should mention along the way. I moved to Rawlinson Alliance at the time. Yeah. And... Um, which would be a very famous brand, RSA. Like, yeah, it was like, Royal like, and it was Sun Alliance and then it became um, Royal and Sun Alliance and yeah. then it became RSA. Mm-hmm. And um, that was two years. I enjoyed it very much. And what was, was your role there? Again, it was marketing oriented, but marketing in that same space mm. and um, product led marketing, mm. which was good in that it, it introduced to me, I had the opportunity to, you know, as in any good product, you know, understand the the target market. I understood yep. them pretty well from receiving submissions from brokers and meeting with customers, meeting with clients. I understood their their needs pretty well. Um, but you know, doing it in a more organised way, yeah, and um, engaging then with some really good um, legal talent in London to understand the you know the contracts and how we formed the contracts and mm. made them as as clear as possible and it was the time as well when it was it was I was going to say popular it was the right thing to do to to write insurance policies in plain English and uh, there was a campaign to make insurance policies more understandable to men in the in the yeah, London universal omnibus. language they call yeah. it oh yeah yeah and universal so design. you know we were bringing our policies into that space and mm-hmm. um, you know it was a very interesting time from a marketing perspective. In the in the if you're interested in marketing and insurance at and the insurance, time, yeah, yeah, they seem to get a lot of negative attention from media. You never hear positive stories about insurance. Was that a battle that you had right throughout that career? Like in terms of, you know, if you mentioned that your insurance, like oh, what was you know what was it like? You know, it's not. It shouldn't be seen as in those negative terms. It's like every industry out there. There are bad actors that yeah. create bad vibes for lots of people. And those are the ones that the press will talk about. And the, but if you were exposed to the claims being paid, yeah, 
you know, somebody was delivering. I remember I was in training in Boston in the States. And that was one of the great things about Chubb at the time. I joined in July 91. And I and one week later, I was sent to the States for six months training. Yeah. At 23 years of age Brilliant. in 1991, yeah. you know, where Ireland was at the time, that was an outstanding achievement to be flown off to the States and on a per diem with one of the best regarded insurance companies in the United States at the time mm. or in the world. And so, and I got outstanding training. But when I, what I enjoyed there was I spent some time with the claims department and they were they were going along to assess risk uh, or, you know, loss, what happened after um, uh, an incident or whatever. And then, you know, one of the things Chubb was so well known for was, was his claims philosophy and it still is to this day. And delivering those checks. Um, now, that's, that's the part of the insurance that nobody sees. It's talked about or it's written about in the marketing material, but it's kind of dismissed. But yeah. you can imagine it, you know, mm. somebody's house is burnt to the ground and now they're worried. Yeah. Is the insurance policy, is it going to pay Will out? Will it kick in? Will yeah. it kick in? Mm. And they show up, no mm. qualms, you know, no arguments and they pay the claim. Mm. And so many claims are paid like that. Yeah. So many, even the, the motor claims, you know, yeah. that, that people, there are so many um, motor issues all the time and there isn't enough talked about it. And I think, you know, like with 24 stories, you, you've focused um, so much on telling stories. I don't know why more stories aren't told about that moment when yeah. the insurance company comes through. Like yeah. the, the ads on TV, they try to demonstrate it and there's a call operator and, you know, they're explaining and, you know, there's a burst pipe and everything. They're trying yeah. to, they've, they're yeah. hitting seven or eight out of ten. The health insurance impact. companies maybe have done a bit of it, haven't they? The VHI, done I like yeah. that one they've done, you With know. The teacher. The teacher, there's the story yeah. and that. Um, it's definitely getting better. And, uh, and yeah, so f- it's, it's yeah. there's a lot of positive about the insurance policy. So it shouldn't always because I know the media might have an, an agenda as well and they, yeah. they kind of chase the insurance business they're on about profits and they're on yeah. about, but as you said they don't talk about those good stories. No. Not you enough know. I feel anyhow. You know when or, you see someone outside the courts and you know or something like that and something has happened yeah. you know their business something happened to their business the whole thing went you know flooded or yeah. whatever happened yeah. and, and they got a payout and you know the payout and, and the services that were rendered at the time mm. and the the peace of mind that came and the arm around the shoulder stuff. Yeah. That's real and that happens. Yeah. And I don't think enough is made of it sometimes. And again, like you said about the media, media will concentrate on the bad actors and the mm. stuff that goes wrong a lot of times. It's more sensational. It's easier to talk about. Yeah. But uh, no, and I see it now in the the new game, I mean, if you like. Yeah. the the It's the tip end of the spectrum, the okay. the bad cases that are, in, this is in the in the home renting space. Yeah, you know you don't turn the radio on and hear the good stories. Everything is about negative. Yeah, you know, and our positioning at HomeHack was very much intentionally about yeah. that to yeah. to be. You know, what there was so much yeah. on that negative side. We're going to be the positive side. Yeah, and in pure marketing terms, you would have taught or you teach in in your course. You know the. There's fear and hope, you know, and yeah. the fear is probably an easier one to work with um, in it that uh, mm. you get a lot, lot more stories and more reaction, but we're not going to be that. We're going to work on the hope side. And the hope, yeah. And you, you were talking there about Boston. Mm. Um, London must have been an exciting place, though, to, to uh, you know, be involved in a whole business world. 
It's really exciting. Yeah. I mean, really interesting, exciting. It's an international city. Yeah. Um, there's great regard for the Irish community over there. I, mm. I worked 21 years in the UK. Now, 12 of them I commuted to North Cork, but I went over on Monday morning and I came back on a Thursday or Friday night. Uh, to London so you could say it was so exciting I couldn't leave it go but I, I, by the way I could only do that because I'm very fortunate in life I have a wonderful partner and my wife Laura Yeah. and so she kept the home fires burning and managed everything with Mark and Paul our two sons So did she make did you make a decision when you were going to London that she'd come back to Cork or something or, or what would happen? Well, when I went to London or when I went to the UK I went to Manchester first yeah. in January 1995 mm. I knew the day I got on the plane I was always going to come back home and I was going to build a house on the family farm okay, in yeah. North Cork Yeah, that was, was going to happen no matter that was an understood thing Yeah, and so went over in January 95 in 2004 Mark was five Paul was four or two sons and we just took the decision you know it's time to get them back into the Irish education system and I, my career was going well in London. We're so practical you, people, Laura yeah. and I. Um, Laura was able to take up the reins on the, the Cork side of things. Yeah. And I thought, okay, we'll, we'll commute for a while. It was 2004. The boom was still going. Yeah. Um, it was still going here, but I wasn't 100% convinced how long that was going to happen. I just thought yeah. I had more options in London. in London. I enjoyed the people I was working with. As I said, I liked the job I was doing. The career was going well. And mm. I thought... You know, I'm not one to just walk out of something. Yeah. And uh, that kind of kept going. And of course, 08 came, 09 came. And I thought now was definitely not the time to walk out of of a job Yeah, um, in London. And it was a very resilient place. And yeah, the, the company I was with, Ace European Group or Ace Limited, it continued to thrive yeah. and continued to grow. And I, I learned an awful lot and grew an awful lot with that company. And they didn't have an office in Cork or in Dublin? They had one or? in Dublin, absolutely. And yeah. um, I was very familiar with the, the office in, in Dublin. Yeah. But if I was in Dublin, I'd still have to commute down to Cork. Yeah, so didn't, yeah, in many ways, it's probably easier to go to London. It was. Yeah, yeah. It was. I was at my desk in London at 9.30 every Monday morning for 12 years. And I'd slept in North Cork. On the Sunday on night. On the Sunday night, yeah. And then flew home on Thursday night. I took on a European role and as such, I concentrated a lot of my conference calls on the Friday. So yeah. I had nine conference calls for eight and a half, nine hours on Friday. And for all the world, there were could 20, have been anywhere. I could have been anywhere. And I had 20 countries I was looking after. And so they didn't see me every day anyway. Yeah. And so I could be on the phone to somebody in, in Germany or Paris or wherever. And for all in their mind's eye, they saw me in my office in London. But actually, I was in my office in, in County Cork, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and it went well. I didn't have the long slog on the Friday night. I had done it on the Thursday night, but I had the weekend to look forward to then. And would you see the same people on the plane every week? All the time, was yes. It, yeah, because I was the longest running uh, at 12 years on the Shannon flight. I used to go Shannon probably more than Cork Airport. Okay, and yeah. I often went to Kerry Airport as well. Yeah. And sure, at the time, Ryanair, I, I paid a cent for... Dozens of flights. I paid seven I euro. Seemed... I remember for an awful lot of flights, I paid seven euro. Yeah, and around twenty euro, I'd say, would be the average. Yeah, so it, it was cheaper than the train. I was paying more in diesel to go to the airport than I was for the flight for the five hundred miles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did, and I heard uh, I met so many interesting people on the flights as well. You it was know, like a little group of people. There were, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was it was a lot of times it was nodding value in that we yeah. all knew we had to get in the plane, go to sleep, get up, uh, wake up another. 
60 minutes later in Stansted or Heathrow or Gatwick and and head into the city in our various directions and we'd see nodding again at each other on the Thursday, Friday. We got to know each other but yeah, yeah, it was, um, there was a group, a cohort and it was was a good lot of people doing that, you know. And it was great to have London to go to at the time because it was precarious enough here in the late, you know, 29, 2010, 2011, 12 in Ireland. Um, Laura was... um, she did a brilliant job looking after the young fellas during the week. You know, there was everything from, God, she was doing it on her own, you know, like with a full-time hurling. taxi driver. There yeah. was hurling. Yeah. There was the school. There was the school hurling. Yeah. There was the um, taekwondo. There was the piano for 10 years. The two yeah. boys got grade eight oh, each yeah. in the piano. That took 10 years each, but that was Laura for yeah. 10 years. Um, yeah, and then there was the, the rugby and obviously everything to do with school as well. So, and then... Eventually, we stopped the commute. Yeah. The recovery was harder on the weekend. Okay. Was you dr- know? So you were probably I was, less time to do things uh, at the weekend? Yeah, no, it's not that. No, the, the, you, you know, I worked hard during the week mm. and usually on Saturday mornings, I was recovered, fresh and ready for road. But it started to be Monday or Saturday lunchtime and Saturday afternoon and the fog was lifting from the tiredness from the week. Yeah. And all of a sudden I was almost as tired going back on a Monday as I was. Mm. Um, and that was just pure the dint of that many years doing it. Yeah. And I wanted to be strong going into work, you yeah. know. And then, you know, I did a responsible job too. You needed to be focused, yeah. you know, you needed to. And it was, um, the standards are high at that company. And, mm. you know, I didn't want to... I didn't want to slack at yeah. all. And so, um, and then there comes a time when, you know, approaching 50, I wanted to try, you know, something else. I thought, is this, so do I do this until I'm 60, 65? Yeah. I mean, yeah. do I do one thing now, even though it was lots mm. of variety and I enjoyed yeah. it and I worked with really good people. Yeah. And I, I was very interested in what I did. I just thought, and the, the another major reason was Mark and Paul were transition year and fifth year. And I thought, I didn't want to keep it going so long that I'd regret it. You know, the boys had left home and gone off to college. So I took yeah. on the, I was at home when they were going to fifth year, sixth year and the end of senior cycle, secondary mm. school. And I'm delighted I did that. So I had that w- with them. And at the same time, I didn't dive straight into home hack. I spent two years working in, in sort of a research job. I wasn't sure what did I want to do. I knew I wanted to work in an SME. I wanted to work in um in a small business yeah um i wanted to go back to that closeness to the customer you know mm. with success you 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 rise up the corporate ladder and you end up in the boardroom and it's all wonderful and it's kind of where you've been striving for yeah. but at the same time you're getting more and more and more remote from the customer yeah from what i described earlier on as you know i as an underwriter i would go to the client meetings i i was thrilled to sit in front of some insureds and, and explain what I knew about directors and officers liability insurance yeah. uh, or whatever other product that I was talking about or just explain about my company that I was representing. Mm-hmm. And I I very much miss that. The, the higher up you get, the less often you are in front of the actual customer. And you're kind of relying on being amongst very good people. And we had great, we have, they have great people over at that company. But I I missed that a lot. And so... I thought, okay, I don't want to go back into corporate world. I worked for two years then with a, a business that was researching um, how to make water more productive to grow crops. 
it was a water research sort of project job yeah, yeah. and I looked after their their business here in Ireland which is a small business um, run by um, a very successful individual and I enjoyed working for him and for his business and it was uh, a very worthwhile project to work on it was all around sustainability and as I said you know there is about to be or sometimes all, there already is a shortage of water in a lot of parts of the world mm. and so our goal was to find a way to make water more sustainable, more productive. So using, getting more done with the same amount of water. Okay. And so that was totally different for me and I was very um, interested in it. Now, and that project came to a natural end and at that stage I had worked out what I'm doing today, you know, that uh, I wanted to start a business, I wanted to do some good and I wanted to develop new skills, which meant we, yeah. we met. Yeah, um, yeah. The skills I wanted to take on were in digital marketing and digital full stop. So I, that's what brought me to MTU to do the master's in digital marketing. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I wanted to establish a business that did some good. I wanted to have that feeling. I was craving that feeling for we're actually helping somebody. We're doing something really important. And so what could that be? And, you know, every day on the radio, everybody I met more or less in, in business and outside of business was talking about the accommodation situation in the world. Yeah. And I had, because I had commuted for that length of time, I had, I added up 12 times I'd rented over 25 years in different countries. Mm. And I'd been a landlord four times, you know, just a property that we had, like our family home in the UK. We didn't just sell it straight away. Yeah. We moved back to Ireland and we rented it out. Yeah. When I looked at the, the whole crisis the accommodation crisis and I looked at the process I just thought this is too hard on people it came to a head when Mark was in university he went to NUIG mm. yeah the first year was brilliant and he was in digs mm. um, but he wanted to live in a house with other lads or ladies at the end uh, in second year yeah. he wanted to move into a, a student house Yeah, and he was so determined that he'd already applied for a bunch of houses that he saw advertised at the end of May before he came home from college. And I drove up in the car, you know, to, to get his stuff and to bring him down and delighted he was coming home for the summer, you know. Yeah. And um, he'd got um, an appointment, you know, a viewing to see a house. Yeah. And there were four PhD students in this house. And we went around the house and I just thought they saw a first year stroke, second year coming into the house and... That was that. But this was the only viewing that Mark had had. So we went through all of that. But we came away home anyway. And of course, he didn't get that. But he got no response from all of the other places he tried. Okay. And he was doing the right thing. But so we sat down and we worked on what we now call a tenant CV. So we worked on how would he promote himself and knocked on four different doors that he knew were places for rent. And he was offered four places. And he got an apartment in Air Square that he was delighted with. He had a great, great place a, a great year, yeah. great in Galway, right in the heart of it. That kind of steeled my resolve then. I thought, okay, I'm going to look closer at this. Like what he did got a very positive outcome here. Mm. And if, imagine it from the landlord's side, somebody walks up to the door, they have all of their materials right there in front of you and they're standing in front of you and presenting themselves and you can see who it is you're going to have yeah. in that accommodation. Um. You know, it, it worked from that perspective as well. So I just thought, I'm going to research this a little bit more. And I just looked at the model that renting is all about. And I just flipped it in its head and thought, okay, 
if you if you look at the recruitment game, back in 2002, LinkedIn came along. Mm. Before LinkedIn, if you wanted a job, you had to, you know, you walked down the street and looked at the ads on the, on the windows. Yeah. You looked at classified ads. Yeah. You had to go find the ad with the job that you wanted to apply for. Mm. But with LinkedIn today, if you want to hire somebody, you can go to LinkedIn, you can do a very quick search and you can narrow it down to how many people in Cork work in social media. Yeah. And you can figure that out in 10, 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. You'll have a pretty good list straight away. And so it, it, it introduced the other side of the marketplace and mm. it empowered you. To, if you do a very good tenant CV or LinkedIn profile, if you like, yeah. you can be found yeah. very quickly. And I mapped that across and modeled it to the renting space. And, you know, it started to fall into place. And I, I, I sort of had a, a wireframe, if you want to call it that. I had a sketch of what this would look like. And then I came up to Cork here. I made appointments with a lot of, with people from the leading estate agents up mm. and down South Mall mm. and outside South Mall. And I did two hour interviews. I then sought out and met some landlords and yeah. I quizzed them about the way it was at the moment nobody was happy with and the way I was thinking of making it and they all loved it and I didn't know any of these people and then of course I found tenants and you know 100% were not happy from the tenants perspective and I I thought okay there's there's certainly a demand for something different here you know there is a demand for something different we just we need to figure out how to articulate this. And I created wireframes for an online mm. system. And I worked with Granite Digital here in Cork, Connor Buckley and the team. And they were very good to me. Yeah. Very good. I had very good um, engagement with them. And at the same time, I thought, okay, this business needs to start now as in modern. So it needs to be, obviously, it's online. Yeah, I needed skills so I looked around for the right skills and yeah. that's where I discovered the Masters in Digital Marketing yeah. um, Strategy out in MTU, yeah. CIT at the time. And so I used that course then to, you know, part of that Masters, there's nine months to work on um, a supervised uh, project, if you like. Yeah. And it's an act uh, it's a research-based mm. uh, project. I'm sure that was ideal for me. I was getting my business plan refined I was not done with researching the need, yeah. you know, um, the need for something different. There is only one way in every country around the world is that a, a property becomes vacant. Somebody wants um, a tenant. Yeah. They put it up on a property website. Yeah. And that's the same in every country around the world. So what's the and alternative then, to that? Well, you put up a property in the property website and they're business model. They're an advertising business model. Yeah. So the more people that look at that ad, the better. And mm -hmm. if you look at Rightmove in the UK, they'll get 12 billion hits um, a month, I think it is at the moment. And oh. Zillow would have even more in the States and Interscout in Germany. Um, so their goal, and they're very successful at it, is to drive eyeballs to that page. And that's all they're interested in. That's their total goal. And they get paid to put the ad up there and they get paid again they use the ad as clickbait and then they'll get banners. A lot of the models are they'll get banners, yeah. advertising banners on the page. And so they're using your product, your house, um, that you've paid to advertise it. They turn it into clickbait and they'll bring more eyeballs onto the page. And then the 
telephone company or the, the bank or the insurance company who's advertising on the page will pay them for the most amount of people that come to the page. Mm. So their goal is always around getting as many people as possible to see the page. Yeah. They get paid more. That has nothing to do with the poor individual that has no home that is applying and looking at that page because they want to get into it to live. It has nothing to do with the the estate agent who who needs to advertise the house, but what they want is to rent the house for their, their client, the landlord. And the landlord, the DIY landlord who takes it on themselves, they don't want 500 or 5,000 applications. That's that's actually a bad outcome for them. Yeah. Because they, it's just they're just flooded with phone calls and with applications and they can't tell one from the other. So the alternative is to make it around people. Why is it all about property? It's the real estate industry. It's property lettings. Yeah. You know, a lot of the sites are, are they have property in their title, the, the name of the of the site. And so I just thought, no, I wanted to do some good. This should be around people. Mm. It's it's about finding people who match with the need, what a house is offering. What are the needs of the person who needs to rent? And then how can we get a house now that matches those needs? Yeah. And the outcome there, going back to Christians and, and jobs to be done, is a happy tenant. That's the outcome that suits everybody. Clearly, the tenant is going to be happy, wants to be happy. But the landlord and letting agent, they want happy tenants, if they, the good ones do, certainly. And yeah. the reason they just want, they want happy tenants rather than just paying tenants is because happy tenants want to stay there. They want it to be their home. Part of the research that I did with um, MTU that time, we identified 229 needs with the tenant, the landlord, the agent and the entire, all the stakeholders. Yeah. And we identified that with a property website approach, you satisfy 69 of the needs. But with a people approach, you satisfy 181 of those needs. Interesting. Yeah. Because they have much more needs than I need a property. You know, there's so many more. It has to do with their commute. Yeah. It has to do with their convenience to the their clubs, their amenities, the commute to the kids' schools. That's a lot of needs to satisfy. And yet the traditional conventional model doesn't focus on satisfying any of them. It says, here is a property, it's got this amount of beds and this is the rent. Yeah, yeah. And you squeeze into that if you're lucky enough to get picked. I feel the sense of an organised person, a bit like what Mark did, they get their tenant CV together and we help them to get their tenant CV together on HomeHack. Yeah. We help them to organise it, to collect it, to get it in there and organised inside in their in their account. And it's safe in there. And for somebody who, who wants, who knows they need the data to get the home, because you, you have to have a certain amount of it is required yeah. um, by the people who will rent you the home. Um, some people are happy to put a lot of that out there for everybody to see it, mm. um, to attract people to them so that they might get offered the, the property. And other people are very circumspect about that. And so we that was a big challenge in building the platform. We have to cater for all of those the full range and do it in such a way that your your threshold for privacy does not mitigate against you, yeah. if you like. Yeah. And so we help, everybody can put a summary of what is in their tenant CV on our platform. And when you, when you go to homehack.com and you go to tenant selector, we put all of the summaries there. Mm. It says tenant CV contains. Yeah. And if they have rental history, employment details, uh, four references, 
Um, it might say they want their desired location is Douglas in Cork, or and it might say that they work in Little Island or yeah. whatever. Now, it's not giving the detail at that stage, but that's the what it's saying to the would-be landlord, homeowner, or or, or um, letting agent is that there's an organised person. You know, they are organised. They have it all. It's all there. It's all ready. I yeah. can't see the detail yet. Yeah. But if I and some people then will there's a button on the bottom that says see more details. Some people leave that button and see their their full CV if you like, and other people say request more details. In other words, and when you press request more details, it comes up and said, um, this person Joe Blogs would like to see you know what property are you looking to rent? Yeah. So they just want to see a little bit more before they give you more. But you know at least they're organised, mm. um, and that's what the the letting agents and the DIY landlords want at the end of the day. They want to organise people. If they're organised about their own CV, Stephen, they're probably going to pay the the gas bill on time and the electricity bill on time. They're yeah. probably going to put the bins out on time. Yeah. They're probably going to put the bins back in again on time. They're just organised people. So you're kind of, you're nearly bringing that insurance element in where you're talking about eliminating risk into this industry. Yes, very much so for the, the letting agent. For the letting agent For, and the, for the DIY landlord, very much so. That's a very good way to put it. And a lot of people see it that way because especially nowadays, the fear factor is there nonetheless. Mm. Will I be so unlucky as I will get the tenant from hell? Or will I be so unlucky that I will have the letting agent or landlord from hell? And we are taking the risk out of that. And what we're doing, Stephen, is putting a big wedge of trust into the situation. Mm. You know, we're the first in Ireland, we worked with Stripe on their beta on the beta product for Stripe Identity. And I think we're just still the first in the letting space in this country to have it. And so everybody that creates a tenant CV on HomeHack, they are entitled to click a button and get their ID verified straight away. And what that means is that they get a badge on their tenant CV that says their ID is verified. And what they've done is they've shown their passport or driver's license to Stripe Identity. And so what that means is they don't then, they shouldn't then have to give it up again to yeah. a landlord or to a letting agent because there's no need. Stripe has already checked it and probably checked it much better than you will with the naked eye anyway. Because this came true in the research. A lot of people were nervous about giving up those sort of documents. Yeah, because where does it go? Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, where does it go? And and they're worried about identity theft afterwards. Mm-hmm. And so we've had so many benefits in there um, to do with protecting their data. Yeah. And so... A lot of times they have to prove, you know, that they can afford the rent. And at some stage later on in the process, they have to show, okay, what are your earnings? You know, can you afford? How yeah. We need to know that you can afford this level of rent or you and the others in the household. And so a lot of people are handing over copies of bank statements and, and their wage slips. And of course, that contains so much material that can be used against them in terms of identity theft. And they're a lot of times, I have to say, naively just giving it all away. And a lot of the letting agents especially and some of the DIY landlords are very nervous about receiving it because that's very heavy duty information for them to protect from a GDPR standpoint. Yeah. Um, and so we've reduced the, so does, the risk So you're reducing there. the risk for the tenant as Big well? Big time. So, yeah. Because w- when, when you upload your, let's say your bank statement onto your home hack tenant CV. So in LinkedIn, it's it's whatever you see on the page, but we, we're like linked in with bells on because you can upload documents to our platform. And so you can upload, the, you know, those sensitive documents. You can upload the lease that you sign, 
videos of the property the day you move in and photographs. You can you can upload all of that kind of material and store it in your repository. Yeah. But also every document that goes in there, we automatically put a watermark onto the document. Yeah. Um, we give you the power to limit the amount of time you share it with the other individual so they have enough time to look at it and, and make the assessment. But then you can close it down again. Uh, we give it the power to allow them to print it or not print it. Um, we give there's a log there for who is it that you gave access to so you know who it is you shared it with um, and these are all little security pieces that came from the feedback like it sounds a fantastic model for both parties yes but how do you monetize it then well if you're giving over value to somebody they don't mind paying for it so you just feed. have to give enough of value and so it's a subscription based business model okay. and I said we, we turned it on its head before so we've no advertising on the platform so there's no third party advertising we don't want to kowtow to any anybody who might put up an ad and need to get data or feed you know metrics from the yeah. ad uh, we're entirely independent and that's one of the that's a, a feature of, of who we are and what we're about so we're not in the pocket of you know a big property owner or an estate yeah. agency or or you know any group body of tenants or anything like that we're entirely st- independent standalone yeah um we're funded by subscriptions from tenants some tenants you don't have to pay for it we we require every agent and landlord to also verify their identity before they can use the system and do they pay a subscription they'll pay a subscription as well every every member be they tenant landlord or agent get a certain free period yeah. Um, just to try out the system and see is it for them. Yeah. And as in every platform in the world, every system will every the system will not be for everybody. But for the ones who value keeping their data safe, um, or the landlord who feels I don't I can't deal with hundreds of application forms, I don't know who to trust. For that landlord who wants that security and just to be able to go to HomeHack, all you do is type in your address of the property, press return, and you see who's looking for a house there and then on the system. The only cost for that in day one is you can see from the outside, you can see a couple of hundred straight away in Cork yeah. right now. Um, and in Dublin, you're starting to see more. But then if you want to engage with them and if you want to see more details, the only cost up for the next step is you have to verify your ID with Stripe. It takes two minutes. And then after 30 days, the landlord or homeowner um, can pay to, to stay in the system and keep what it is they've worked on. If they've, if they've um, shortlisted 10 people and they want to engage with them, you know, they still have their account and yeah. they're still able to do that. And so, and from the letting agent's perspective, you know, can you imagine the difference for the letting agents um, as well as the landlord? But when they come in in the morning now, they could face up to 2,000 emails per for um for some of the properties, um I was in Dublin. We're we're launching in Dublin since January, um building it out up there. And one agent put one house. The agent we were presenting to um yeah. the previous day at twelve o'clock, and I was presenting at eleven o'clock the following morning. And they had one thousand two hundred uh, applications for one house. For one house. Now that's just a wrong model. That's just random. That's a wrong model yeah. altogether for me. So they because must one be thousand random are they one thousand one hundred and ninety eight won't get the house. Yeah, it's good for advertising from that perspective, that an advertising business model. Mm. But you're playing with people here, and we want to change that entire. It's 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 part of what we're we're promoting from our ESG perspective, environmental, social, and governmental perspective. We can help employers to help 
their staff find homes near to the workplace. Mm. And that's our newest product. That product is in beta right now. It's live in Cork. Um, we'll be promoting it and it's from for here employers. on. It's for employers. Yeah. Um, Cork University Hospital have a page on our yeah. site and a lot of their medical staff can't find homes in Cork. And it's it's dreadful because they're here. They've come all the way from a different country a lot of times. Sometimes it's just they've come from Sligo or Galway or Dublin yeah. to Cork. You know, they're, they're competing with the entire community. And these individuals, oftentimes they're not always paid hugely well. So they don't have cars a lot of times. They're not yeah. from this country. And you know what? They they need to have somewhere on a bus route that's convenient to the hospital. And I'm saying CUH, but we will we hope to do it with the other hospitals as yeah, well. Yeah. And so we did a campaign and uh, we contacted 332 property professionals, let's say, letting agents, property managers, um, some DIY landlords. We had a great response. Um, you know, we had two houses come to us in Mitchellstown. We had two in Middleton. We had 10 bedrooms um, in apartments here in Cork. Um, and it was great. And it, it goes back to why we, our site, obviously I'm so confident about it in the future. We're about people. And when we made it about people, not property, when we flipped that business model and we said, we have these people, they're on the CUH site on HomeHack. They're doctors, medical professionals, nurses. They need homes now. Um, you can just go there and see them. Can you offer them uh, a home? So if you have a property to rent in the next month, you can prioritize them. And we got the great response. Yeah. And it was an early validation for our product that is now live, the HomeHack Employers product. Yeah. And so going forward, uh, we will we hope to and we're adding another hospital this Friday. Um, but we hope to add employer after employer. And so we bring the employer into the game. So they have a page on HomeHack and on that page, it says a little bit about the employer. But on any given day, if they have staff who need homes, those staff will be, their tenant CV is listed on that employer's page on HomeHack. And what it means is that, and going back to your own teachings um, in marketing, now it means they have a place, they have a page on a platform that serves somebody looking for a home that the employer can take the page and market it. They can put it in their newsletters. These are the staff who are working for us who need a home. We make it about people. Rather so imagine than the rather than the property. But when, when they're saying they need a property, they're also saying, here are the people that will live in this property. And they're probably verifying their staff in that regard. Exactly. Well, yeah. they have to anyway because they're giving an employer's yeah. reference. Yeah. And so as well as giving them the reference, then they're leaving it up to the employee to go off out into the the, the competitive space that is the renting space and mm. find their own property. Yeah. So at the moment, it's Cork and Dublin. It's Cork, it's Dublin, it's Limerick from next week. Okay. Um, and the, the wonderful thing is the signals are happening and that we focused on Cork. Yeah. And um, we've had the emails, when you're bringing this to Tralee, yeah. Um, we had the call from Limerick, from a, a large employer in Limerick. We're starting with the employer's product in Limerick. Yeah. Um, and yes, we've had great support from some agents in Dublin, starting with DNG and Rat Mines. Um, but we have others coming in, coming out um, in about two weeks' time. We'll have more. It sounds like, you know, an unbelievable service. It's amazing no one else had thought of it in many ways. But then that comes with... I suppose, you know, your years of experience, your, your, there's a couple of things coming to your mind. Yeah, you know, it's, it's there now. We have a long journey to go. The execution has to be there. We 
the best day in our business is when we get another testimonial. Yeah. You know, one of the doctors who found a place in CUH wrote into us with her testimonial and I read it even yesterday and she talked about uh, the wonderful ethos that she found with Homehack, you yeah. know, her her word. Yeah. And that that's so motivational for myself and the rest of the team, you know. But it's such a new product and it doesn't exist anywhere else. Mm. We need more feedback and more feedback, you know. Um, but I, I want to also point out... Well, Along the way, we've had tremendous support, Stephen. And I want to say people in Cork help people in Cork. Mm. I've had people come out of the woodwork to back our efforts to change something that's a 27-year-old business habit. Yeah. You know, there are letting agents and there are letting agents. The ones who call up and say, I like what you're doing. We, we're we're going to try this out. They don't have to. They They have a process. Yeah, they have no shortage of business. They have no shortage of business, but the ones who do that, you never forget it for them. Yeah. You know? So now it's your turn to give somebody else some advice. So I finished the podcast with three tips. So other people have given you support. What tip would you give a business growing? Maybe it's a business in the startup community because, you know, you're you're early in that journey. Yeah. I would say, I would say reach out to I don't want to put you in the frame, but people like yourself, Stephen, you know, David Doyle had some good conversations with him. Um, you know, Vivian over at the at MTU as well, yeah. Vivian Griffin, you know, the local enterprise people. Th- there are people in the, I want to say the community and other people as well, entrepreneurs. I think you're dealing with entrepreneurs all the time and SMEs. Mm. It's more valuable to reach out to somebody who's running a business, as an SME, I find they'll give you their time. Um, I find the the advice you're going to get is so much more valuable. They're closer to the the coalface. They're closer to the the front line. You you'll get so much value from the conversations you have with people who run businesses. Yeah. Um, and I would say that's that's the best advice I could give. And that's before you start the business. And talking about speaking to people, the second question I have usually is, what tip would you give an individual, in particular, someone? that maybe has had a, an extensive career like yourself in one industry and all of a sudden decides to go a different direction, what tip would you give someone like that maybe listening? I would say don't sort of um, make any rash decisions. You know, do as I said to the earlier question, have conversations, you yeah. know, especially, you know, at home and with your the wider close community around you. Mm. But you have a luxury there to actually, you know, if you have your 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 existing job, to to reach out to people, yeah. you know, and you want to know, are you going to be happy in this new place? You know, are you are you are you jumping from a, a burning raft, or or is this a much better place that you can step onto? You know, that's it's it's where you want to go. It's where you want to be. You know. So you, you kind of want to see or envision what that those could be as much as you can before you actually make the jump. And a lot of times if you if you sit down and speak to people before you leave the industry you're in, before you leave the mm. sector. But the other side of that is, Stephen, I, I'm very much with that crowd who say you don't want any regrets. And I'm very much one to have a go. Have Just a go. have a go, you know. I mean, you don't want to be, if you if you get a chance to cross the white line and get onto the pitch, whatever the pitch looks like, you know, there's nothing more exhilarating yeah. than to be on the pitch or making a difference. 
So I would encourage people to have a go. And the last question I have is in, in relation to our new sponsor, Skillsbase. Um, and I think in, in the insurance industry in particular, what skill would you need for a sector like that? You spend so much um, time there. Well, for me, it's it's about people skills, really. You're going to get that a lot. And I, you, I yeah. know you've heard it before. Yeah. But um, being able to engage with people, you know, being able to talk to people. Um, I know for myself, I learned so much more from just talking to people. Like I'm, I'm a, I'm a talker. Mm. I talk probably too much. Not, not something you want to hear on a podcast. But um, when you engage with people, you learn an awful lot more. Yeah. You know, and I think the there there is a skill there with just. Irish people suffer it less than other nationalities being able to walk up to somebody and engage them in conversation and find out what's interesting about them. Be brave enough to ask. And be brave enough to ask. Um, Is it a skill to ask? I don't know, but I think it's vital. And the other thing I learned um, all along, going back to being an underwriter, which is about asking questions. You know, you have to make assessments. Do you want to back this company or take on this risk? And the only way you can do that is to ask questions about it. And more and more and more and more questions. Um, that's the only way you learn. And smart people ask an awful lot of questions. You know, you only get smarter by asking. And so, yeah, I would say that's if that's a skill, that would be really very high up on the list for me. Pat, it's been a fascinating uh, conversation. I think it's been really, really interesting to hear how you've gone from one industry into a completely different industry. Um, it's I know it's only the start of that journey, Um but I'd also like to say congratulations on your nomination as well for the Cork Business Awards. Thank you very much. And so I know people can vote for that, I think. They can vote up to the 13th of February. I was gobsmacked when we got the news, but yeah. f- floored and delighted because it's just validation. Yeah. It means that the business community took yeah. notice. Yeah. Um, wow, wasn't expecting it. Um, yeah, and if you, you just go to the Cork Business Association and on on their site or any of their social media pages, you'll see the awards and you can click on it and, and vote, which would be wonderful. But you know what? We are delighted to be finalists. I can't believe it. And I'm delighted. And the staff, I have to mention, it's not just me now. Um, yeah. You know, I've got tremendous staff. Um, I'm going to name shout um, Anna and Denise and Sinead and Colm, um, Andrew and Andre. And I should mention, even though it's at the very end, we have... Our staff includes a team of people in Ukraine 20 miles from the Russian border who have been bombed and disrupted like you wouldn't believe. Mm -hmm. And they have not missed a beat. They have, they're continuing um, hero-like and delivering everything that was expected of them all along the way. And if there's a major reason why we're going to make a success of the business we're making, it's it's really down to their their resilience and their perseverance. It's just outstanding. Yeah. Um, and we're thousands of miles away. It's just a job. But they are so committed to home hack. It's motivating to the extreme. And that's partly why we're going to deliver a success, partly is to to um, as a reward for all their effort. Well, look, best of luck in the awards and more importantly, best of luck in the business going forward. Thanks a million, Pat, for coming in. Thank you very much. That wraps up this week's podcast. Thanks again to our sponsor, Skillsbase app, which is a solutions provider for companies looking for mobile-first engagement and blended learning tools. To find out more information on what they can do, visit skillsbase.ie. 
Don't forget to like and subscribe to the show and get in contact with us on all social platforms. I will be back again next week with a brand new episode.